listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What makes the Civil War different from most other wars? One thing is it has its own talk radio show. Another is that it has its own magazine. Not one magazine, but many magazines. Among them, the oldest Civil War Times, once Civil War Times Illustrated, and America's Civil War. Who reads these? Who writes them? Who edits them? We'll find out today, talking with the editor of America's Civil War and Civil War Times. He's Dana B. Schoff, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Art Deprivation Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to another episode of our show. It is a beautiful day in May 2009. Uh, it's finals week here at East Carolina University, where the show is coming from in my office in the Brewster Building. But it's not paid for or otherwise uh, part of the East Carolina project, and I'm not speaking for the university, nor does it speak for me. I'm sure our guest will speak for himself and not for any other organizations or institutions. It's uh, budget crisis time, as it was uh, the last time we talked on this show. I just see an ECU police car racing by to uh, ticket the driver, perhaps that will help with the budget um, as we go forward. But uh, things are, are lean. Uh, we cannot buy printer cartridges to keep the printers going with state money, so we're buying them ourselves as we try to get to the end of the fiscal year, June 30th, before the entire enterprise goes uh, belly up. But that won't happen. One way or another, we'll muddle through and keep going. Civil War Talk Radio, meanwhile, continues in its healthy state because I don't get paid anything to do it. So there's no expense at this end. Um, you're welcome, as always, listeners, to donate to the book fund of Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, contributions can be sent to civilwartr at aol.com. If you send in $20 or more and ask for it, I'll send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln. That's a paperback edition. Or if you'd prefer a hardcover first edition of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-1862. And whether you send 
uh, funds to that address or not, uh, look me up on the Internet and send an email to my office here at East Carolina University if you have suggestions for who you'd like to hear on the show. There's also the website, cwtr.org, that has additional information. Uh, but the main uh, site is where we are now, where you're listening from at World Talk Radio. Last week, there was no live show. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, campus of Harvard University, the Houghton Library, and uh, Emerson Hall, and participate in a bicentennial Lincoln Forum. It was uh, a, a very interesting event. Uh, there were, uh, again, some of the great names in Lincoln scholarship were there. Some of the great names were not there. Unfortunately, David Herbert Donald uh, was, was incapacitated, unable to join us for the week, uh, for the weekend. But I understand he's, he's doing all right and working on a biography of John Quincy Adams, but did not feel up to coming into the conference. And uh, James McPherson, the uh, exceedingly well-known uh, Civil War historian, had to cancel his appearance at that conference and several others in the Boston area. I haven't heard more about that, but I hope he's uh, all right and there's nothing serious there. But there are many other people uh, whose names are familiar to listeners of this show. Uh, Drew Faust, the president of Harvard, who has a fairly recent book on uh, death in the American Civil War and who I got a word in with and hope to have on the show sometime in the future. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin was there, Harold Holzer and Frank Williams, Craig Simons, who has a fine new book on Lincoln and his admirals, um, oh, Matt Pinsker, Mike Vorenberg, all friends of this show. And uh, in the case of Mike and Matt, former either classmates or students of mine at Harvard University. Uh, this week I'll get my money's worth on mentioning Harvard. As longtime listeners know, uh, one of the ways I try to recap the massive investment of time spent at Harvard is by uh, mentioning it uh, whenever possible that I have a degree from there. So uh, we'll do that right now. It was actually quite uh, inspiring, I guess is the word, to stand on the stage in Emerson Hall where David Donald lectured in his Civil War class uh, when I was a graduate student of his in the 1980s, early 90s, and uh, taught uh, with him, for him, and then to stand behind the same lectern and speak on the same subject that he uh, spoke on when I was just getting started in the field. It was quite uh, quite an honor, and I, I really appreciated the chance to be part of that event. For those who want to hear the kind of things I was talking about, uh, there will be some upcoming appearances. We'll run through those quickly and get to our uh, guest as soon as we can here. May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. That's this Tuesday uh, at the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable. May 12th, uh, the following Tuesday, Richmond, Virginia, at the Civil War Roundtable there. I will be speaking. And then May 16th, uh, later that same week, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, at the Tilson uh, Historical Society. Uh, I'll be uh, presenting something there. So I uh, look forward to seeing uh, folks from uh, Civil War Talk Radio Land at these events. I've got the chance to meet some of you at some of the previous talks and uh, always enjoyed doing that. Well, the talk radio uh, internet format is one way to reach a wide audience, but another way uh, that the Civil War differs from a lot of other wars is that it has an audience, apparently, who will buy 
month after month, glossy magazines that tell us about the Civil War. Our guest today is the editor of two of those, uh, Dana Schof. Mr. Schof, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you? Good. Thank you for being on the show today. No uh, problem at all, Jerry. Now, you you said there was no money involved with this broadcast, and I had been told, you know, I was going to get a big fat check out of this, So, but I hung on the line anyway. Well, that, that's that's good of you, uh, gullible yet good. The um, uh, here in uh, here in the state of North Carolina, and we are not the worst off state by a, by a long shot. Uh, the the funds for higher education have been cut in all kinds of ways to try to balance the budget by June thirtieth. And you, as a literary person, and many of our listeners will appreciate the horror of the following statement. Um, we just learned that interlibrary loan funds. Uh, have been cut so that we can only get books from other libraries that don't charge a lending oh. or, or a processing fee. Mm-hmm. It's bad enough. It's bad enough not to be able to travel, uh, right? But now we can't get books brought in. We're really cut off. It's, and I, I can't imagine that that cost would be that great either. You'd think not. You'd, you'd think they could find another priority somewhere they could cut somewhere else. Yeah, I know. So, uh, it I mean, seems. Uh, Unfortunately, a lo- it, with this economic climate, that a, a lot of historical sites are, I guess, under attack in all in all areas. So, um, my native state of Pennsylvania is considering closing a lot of state historical sites, including Washington's Crossing, which I just can't get over. They're even considering that, but they are. So, that, that seems un- does seem unthinkable. Now, the uh, your your very adept staff at uh, your publishing house sent me a envelope full of recent magazines and I was reading them over lunch today uh, uh, that you've edited and I noticed for example Pamplin Park uh, the wonderful site in Virginia uh, closed at, at least part time due to economic downturn yeah it's cl- it was closed for a while and it was open only by appointment but I think they've gone back to a regular schedule now uh, and that you can go down and it will be open uh, throughout the week, regular hours. So uh, that that's the latest word on that, I believe. Well, that that's good news that they're they're at least uh, you know returning to some months of normalcy, and I hope they can keep that up. Um, well, let me ask you and I have not run into each other on the Civil War circuit. Uh, how did you get uh, what looks like a really fun job uh, as an editor of Civil War magazines? Well, I, you know, I. There are days when I drive into work and I, it sort of strikes me, and I really can't, almost can't grasp, grasp sometimes that this, you know, this is what I do for a living because I grew up. Uh, I was born in 1962, and I literally grew up with Civil War times as a young kid, getting the subscription. My mother was a teacher and got me interested in history from an early age. My parents liked antiques. And uh, I grew up during the latter stages, I guess. I was aware of the Civil War centennial. I missed the main part of it, but Civil War was still very much a hot topic. And I got Civil War times and always had a great interest in history and pursued it in school and um, almost with a, a blind faith approach because I knew if you went into history, you really didn't stand a chance of making a lot of money. And not that I do now, but, you know, it was hard to find a job in the field. Well, where did you go to school? I went I went undergraduate to 
Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, which is a really good state school uh, about 60 miles north of Pittsburgh, very close to where I grew up. I was a terrible undergraduate student and uh, barely crawled out of there with a barely passing grade point average. But I got my act together uh, after I graduated, basically, and went back and got my master's there and did well. Went over to Kent State in Ohio and did Ph.D. work. And my wife, and I was married by that time, and my wife got her master's there. And I never finished the Ph.D. I just um, wanted to really, I, I got to the point where we needed to make money. Uh, my wife got a job in, the, in D.C., actually, and we moved out here in August of 1996. And I worked as a freelance writer and researcher for Time Life on a series called Voices of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing led to another, and through um, some folks I knew that actually were working at my company at the time, which was, which was known as Prime Media Publishing, mm-hmm. I applied for a copy editor's position. And I've been here for the better part of 10 years, and I just kind of rose up through the ranks, I guess. And, um, you know, as people left or moved on, I stepped into positions. And uh, I was the editor of America's Civil War maybe four to six years or something like that. And a couple years ago, I became the editor of Civil War Times. We actually have another person now, Tamala Baker, who's the primary editor of America's Civil War. That's a pretty recent development. I still have an oversight with that magazine, but my main responsibility is now, is now just Civil War Times. Well, let me uh, let me first step back and point out Slippery Rock is, is familiar to me as a, a graduate of the University of Michigan, as an oh sure uh, because it is a, a long-standing tradition in Ann Arbor to announce all the other scores around the country in the third quarter and uh, of all the big games, and then there's a pause, and then they announce the Slippery Rock score, I know. I... and the crowd goes crazy when you guys are winning. I know that's uh, that's fantastic. It's it, it's a bizarre. <laughs> Tradition, but it is a bizarre okay. tradition, and I'm not quite sure how that got started. To be honest with you, um, I did play drums in the marching band, and they asked us to go up there one fall. And Slippery Rock actually played in Michigan Stadium. We lost. I saw, the, I saw that game. I was there. Really, we lost at, to Wayne State. Yes, and uh, I was on the field. It was it was sulfurous that day, incredibly <laughs> hot, and we had people passing out. But it was a great experience. A lot of fun. As I recall, they just opened the stadium, so there were maybe forty or fifty thousand people in yeah. it, and it looked empty because it did. It did look empty. Ten thousand packed in there. I know, I know, but it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, that was a, a good afternoon. So, uh, so history was your your interest and passion all along. Yes. Um, and when, when you were at Kent State, uh, was, was Civil War history, the journal there, John Hubble editing that? It was. The the, the journal was there. Um, I didn't get a chance to really participate with it, unfortunately. I studied under Dr. Frank Byrne, who's since passed away. And um, he had a great influence on me because he appreciated public history and historic sites and things of that nature. And he always reinforced that getting history out to a, a popular audience was very important. And I had always felt that way to, be, to begin with. I had always enjoyed the popular end of history, so I, I, I'm sure he had a, a great influence on, on the direction I took with my career. 
Well, let's, let's talk about these magazines. And first, one question that leaps to mind, uh, and it, it came to mind as I was reading back issues today of, of both Civil War Times and America's uh, Civil War, is what's the difference between these two magazines? That's a question, and it's a good question. I'm asked that all the time. And, you know, it, it's it's... It's really hard. We're trying now more than ever to differentiate these magazines. And America's Civil War particularly is supposed to go undergo a redesign fairly soon. To be honest with you, uh, for a long time, I don't think there was a big difference between the two magazines. I think the difference that uh, people had was a bit more of perception than reality. Um, and, you know, with the Civil War, the big challenge is you have essentially four years to draw material from. It's not like a military history magazine that has all of humankind history. It's not even like a World War II magazine. It's not even like a Vietnam magazine um, that, that has a longer time span to draw from. And, you know, both these Civil War titles are going to have stories in them about Stonewall Jackson and about uh, George Meade and, and the major battles. But what we've try to do recently, what I'm trying to do is, is to make Civil War Times, which it, it actually always has been to some extent, a magazine with a broader range. Uh, you know, I try to go before the war a little bit and even after the war in the Reconstruction now once in a while. And we try to bring more of a, a, a bit more social history into the magazine. America's Civil War, we're trying to keep I would say a little bit more military-focused, strictly battle narrative-focused. And we're also trying to appeal to a younger reader with the design of the magazine, making it maybe a bit more fast-paced, a bit more broken up, as we call it in the profession, with more entry points. Uh, Because, let's face it, younger readers are more used to reading on the Internet, and there's a different approach to designing such things. Mm -hmm. So the... So there really will be an increasingly separate identity as you see it. Yes, I, we we are um, we are going to try to to differentiate them more than has been in the past. And um, I've talked to some people that do feel they look more they look uh, they look more different now than they have for a long time. So, um, but it's tough. It's a real challenge. And you know these magazines. The reason, uh, just a brief history, if, if you'll um, indulge me. Yes. These magazines were once owned by separate companies, and they came together through uh, accumulation, if you will. The um, Civil War Times was published, I'm not even sure the original company's name, but it was out of Pennsylvania. America's Civil War was started by a company, and then it was bought by Coles, and then Coles bought the company out of Pennsylvania. And then Coles was bought by Prime Media. And so that's how these two magazines came to be published out of the same place. And it's, it's a purely accounting uh, – well, it's not purely accounting, but there's been talk of merging these magazines at times, but it, it just – there's such a, a, a loyal audience for each that it doesn't make sense to do that. And well, that, mag- that was going to be my next question. Is, is there support for two magazines? Yes. I mean, Civil War Times is sixty-five to 75,000 circ per issue, and that's newsstand and, circ- and subscriptions. America's Civil War is around 45 uh, to 50 right now, newsstand and circulation. So there is. There's an audience for both. We have 
several thousand readers that get both magazines. And it's really an amazing fact that uh, Civil War is so popular that it can support not just these two magazines, but we have North and South, we have Blue and Gray, we have Civil War News, which is a newspaper, and we have journals like Civil War History. There's, a, there's just an avid interest out there in Civil War uh, topics. And it, it, which you know, is fortunate it, for this show. I, Dana, I'm going to cut in here. We're going to take a short break. Sure. We're going to come right back in just a minute and talk more about publishing Civil War magazines. No problem. When we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. My son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son. Crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life. Or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Radio, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Dana Schof, editor of Civil War Times, the granddaddy of them all among Civil War magazines. We were talking in our first segment about how many of them there are, not just Civil War Times, but also America's Civil War, which Dana has edited. Uh, there are other ones, uh, Blue and Gray, uh, North and South. Uh, there's a market out there, apparently, for, for a number of publications on the topic. And it, it's an example of how the Civil War differs from so many other historical eras in having uh, such wide popular appeal. Uh, Dana, do you see that, that appeal going up and down over time? Uh, are we headed into a trough of Civil War interest right now? 
Uh, I do see it going up and down. I actually hope we're starting to see a slight uptick with the sesquicentennial, which is a very hard word to say, uh, the 150th anniversary, of course, because our our sale, I mean, we, we've done a lot. Well, I, I should give you a little background on, on, on our company uh, because we were owned by Prime Media, which was, this huge conglomerate out of New York, and we were bought about three years ago by a private investor, Eric Weeder. And we're privately owned now. And Eric, you know, really is passionate about history, and he's allowed us to put a lot more resources into our magazines. So we have really, in my opinion, improved all of our titles down here. We have about 11 history titles published at the Weeder History Group. And... uh so our Civil War titles have improved in a number of ways. And since his taking over, we have our sales have increased and our circulation has gone up. Not, not a huge amount, but there's a steady uptick. And that's very pleasing to us because this is a really tough climate for magazines right now. And if you want, I can tell you how uh, Walmart is the gorilla in the room about that sort of thing. But before we get too diverged, um, so... Yes, I see an uptick right now. Our sales are going up on the newsstand. Our circulation is increasing. I think it's partially because we've improved the magazines and made them more exciting and better. But I also am hoping that with this uh, 150th anniversary coming up, and we just had a, a, a pretty large conference here in Virginia, which I was unable to attend, but one of the other some of the other folks here did, that we'll see interest rise again and... Um, see a lot more activity in the next few years. Well, that is uh, certainly encouraging, and, and I, I do hope that's accurate. I think the the uh, anniversaries always bring about some additional interest. Certainly the Lincoln Bicentennial has pumped up the Lincoln publishing, uh, book publishing circuit. But you make a good point about the, the decline of magazines, and that was on my list here. Uh, newspapers certainly are, are struggling uh, these days, and one would think magazines might suffer as well from competition with the internet. But uh, but you say you're, you're you're managing that all right, partly with this new design, new new approach. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting. There's been been some talk about it. Uh, newspapers are definitely suffering. News magazines uh, are definitely suffering. We see magazines going out of business. Uh, there was a magazine called Portfolio, which went out of business this week. It only existed a couple years. Uh, but the, the niche magazines, and what, what I work in is considered a niche publishing, you know, publishing for hobbyists or enthusiasts, mm-hmm. seem to be holding their own. And it seems to be that people in the niche or in the hobby still like a tangible connection with their hobby. They don't want to just interface um, with it on the Internet. They want to actually have something to hold in their hand. It, it makes them feel more maybe perhaps a part of the community. So niche magazines are, are holding their own in this climate right now. And uh, I mentioned Walmart. Yes. A couple years ago, I think, well, maybe more like a year, year and a half. It could be a couple years ago. Walmart said, okay, uh, if your magazines don't sell at least 45% on our newsstand, we're not going to carry you anymore. And they eliminated, I think, a 1,000 and some titles overnight just like that. Wow. And Walmart, 
is the largest magazine retailer in the United States. So if you're not in Walmart, you're really missing out on a chance to sell a lot of magazines. They sell more than Barnes & Noble or Borders. It's hard to believe, but they do. At least that's what I've seen and been told. Mm-hmm. And we managed to make the cut. You know, So in other words, if you put 10 magazines out, you have to sell at least, you know, can't break a magazine in half, you have to sell four or five to mm-hmm. make the cut. And um, we've been able to average that in Walmart and, you know, keep it moving up slowly but surely since then. But it is a very tough climate. I can't imagine anybody trying to start a magazine right now. And um, I'm sure a lot of the Civil War publishers, and we're, we're included in that, are, you know, looking to this 150th anniversary and hoping for, for some nice increase in interest. In the first segment, as we were ending there, you mentioned some of the uh, competitors in your field. Yes. Uh, one of them is North and South. Yes. And it, it, as a reader, I will admit that for a number of years, I more or less stopped looking at Civil War times. Uh, I, I looked at American Civil War because mm-hmm. I had an article in it once in a while. Sure. But, uh, but North and South seemed to be pushing itself closer to the the academic side, mm-hmm. uh, particularly by having articles that included references, that had yes. footnotes, and that were more often written by people whose names would be familiar uh, and who often had academic credentials, were not just uh, mm-hmm. you know, popularizers. Now, looking at a recent issue here, Civil War Times, I'm looking at the, the April 09 issue, and there's a debate you have between uh, uh, Mark E. Neely Jr. and Michael Fellman. Uh, the, the famous uh, question was the Civil War a total war mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Neely addressed uh, a decade ago. Uh, you, it seems like that, that's a step in the direction of North and South, uh, more towards a, uh, an academic, it, I don't want to say serious because that implies the other approach is frivolous, but, mm-hmm. uh, but a more in-depth approach. Uh, right. Are, are you having success with that? Is that is that your intent to move that direction? It's, it's, it, yes, it is. I mean, I, even though I didn't complete my PhD, I mean, I consider myself a product of the academy. I went, you know, I completed all the coursework. I mm-hmm. studied. You know, I mean, I, I understand the, the worth of the academy, and one of my missions is to bring that research into a popular magazine. And so far, I mean, I've gotten the mail I get is overwhelmingly positive. I mean, people, readers are seem to be really responding because they're enjoying this stuff. And you know what what started to what I re- began to realize, Jerry, was that there's a huge audience of people out there that aren't really aware of what academics are doing. Mhm. And I mean, someone came back at me and said, "Well, you know, Civil War Scholars do a better job than most reaching popular audiences, and that's true. True, I would people, agree. I mean, you know, Gary Gallagher, people like yourself, uh, McPherson, you know, just to name some names, you know, Peter Carmichael, all give battlefield tours, all do things that come in contact with the general public. However, there's a, still a huge amount of people out there that, that don't seem to be part of some of the debates that we that we have been having for a, a long time. So I want to bring some of those debates into the magazine. You know, let's take another look at McClellan. I ran an article recently about by Elizabeth um, uh, Pryor Brown about Robert E. Lee and his feelings on slavery. 
and that caused a lot of controversy. I got I got people very angry at me, which was was disappointing at me because all I was trying to do was present the facts. But I got I got people that liked it as well. But well, and, sorry, and, I mean, her book is a uh, you know does take a look at fresh evidence on Lee. Yes, it does, and. I really believe that as we approach this 150th anniversary, we need to see the Civil War, we need to take some of the romanticism away, and we need to see the people that were the major actors in this, you know, in a a sort of a fresh light, and realize they're human beings. They all have faults and failings. Lincoln had some faults, as you know. And, uh, you know, we need to be able to openly talk about that kind of stuff. And I've been actively trying to get academics to get material into the magazine and so so that it can reach a popular audience in a in a shorter more digestible format do, do you meet resistance have you ever written to someone or called someone and they just go oh no i don't do that sort of thing actually let me think i don't think that i have no I, I wonder if it's more that, that people in the academy would uh, well, I think, will, will jump at it if somebody just asks them. I, I think you're right, but I think there is sort of... I, I think when I call people up and talk to them, they're enthusiastic about it, but um, I do think that there may be among some folks sort of a, a notion that popular magazines be, aren't, aren't... I don't know if you can use them for your tenure application and um, that that sort of thing, and... When you, when I talk to people and say, "Here's what you can do with this," they get it right away. But mm-hmm. what, what, what's, what I found interesting is sometimes not not all, and I'm not going to name the press, but I've called some university presses and to try to talk about excerpts, and I've left numerous messages. So I never get a call back. And, and I mean that, that's just crazy from a marketing standpoint. It's just insane. Yeah, it, it's, it is, and I don't understand it. But it's happened to me a couple times. So now I do understand. The, you really hit the nail on the head, especially when I'm deal with the junior faculty in my department, uh, we've been looking at uh, the progress toward tenure letters this last week, very grim moment. Not grim. Uh, it can be delightful, but it's <laughs> a tense moment for everybody. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's the word. As, as they get informed how they're doing on their, their quest for the, the, the grail, and they want to know, well, you know, is a conference paper better than an article? Uh, what should I do to get my book out? Uh, and for people on that track, the idea of diverting any time to write for a popular magazine uh, is just unthinkable because mm-hmm. their 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 tenure committee is not going to regard that as a publication that counts. And so now, now those of us who are beyond that, yeah. you know, we can sit back and go, yeah, that's right. You know, Gary Gallagher can do that all day, right? Uh, I wish that you know maybe like a three fifth clause or something. Uh, <laughs> universities would would that's one of the things that I don't think I don't think I have any chance of accomplishing this. But I wish more universities would see the value in popular magazines, um, and you know maybe not give those articles as much weight as something like Civil War history, but nonetheless appreciate that you know that's a good thing that this research that's being done here at uh, great university is is getting out there and reaching a lot of people. Let me let me throw out an idea that has never occurred to me before. the The difference in in the jargon is whether a journal is refereed or not. Mm-hmm. Would it be possible for you to get a few people like myself who would volunteer to read articles 
uh, and I've, I guess I've done this for some of the other magazines on an ad hoc basis where the editor says, uh, I just got this article, but I don't know the topic. Could you take a look, make sure it's any good? Um, if you formally did, you know, one or two a year of refereed articles. Well, that's a, exactly one of the things I want to implement. I have an editorial advisory board that really hasn't done anything for a while, to be honest with you, um, because they haven't been asked to do anything. And um, I was I was editing both magazines, as you mentioned, which actually got to be almost too much. I yeah. was literally turning around, getting one done, and having to put another one out the door in three or four weeks. That's a lot. So, yes, it was pretty pretty crazy. But now I've got a little bit more time, and one of the things I, I intend to develop is the advisory board, and, and I want to use it in the fashion that you suggested, which is to send out articles um, and have them, you know, review it and give me their input and see what they think about it. And I think that that would be a fine thing to do for a, uh, a popular magazine. And it would then allow uh, a scholar who submitted such an article to say this was a refereed journal article. That's right. It's read by people in my field and approved. Right. And, you know, I should say that I see my responsibility in this, too. I mean, I see where I've got to work to make the publication as respectable as possible. I can't, you know, it's not all up to the university to just accept popular magazines. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But I promised during the break, uh, listeners, that there was a special offer, and this is something never before heard on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, no, no commercials other than those uh, those public interest spots we run between the segments to urge you not to commit gun crimes and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here is an actual offer: if you are not yet a subscriber to Civil War Times Magazine. Uh, the, there is an opportunity to do so for about half of the cover price for eighteen sixty five uh, an easy number to remember sure uh, for eighteen dollars and sixty five cents if you call uh, and i 've got a number here to read eight hundred four three five o seven one five and use this promotion code it 's g nine e w t r now I have I get nothing out of this. Uh, I'm just doing this because I think uh, Civil War Times. Uh, it's it certainly if if you read it five or ten years ago, it's a different magazine today, uh, and and worth your while. So listeners, if you want to uh, get a year's worth of it for eighteen dollars and sixty five cents, call that eight hundred number four three five oh seven one five. Mention this code G nine E W T R. And I'm told that offer will be good till the end of this month, May of 2009. So, uh, uh, Dana, let me know if anybody takes you up on that. Well, I appreciate that, Jerry. I will. Sure. Thank uh, you. But uh, I'm always happy to get materials into the hands of people who can use them, and this is certainly a case of that. So, finding authors is one thing. Another question that comes to mind whenever I look at these lavishly illustrated magazines is where you find the illustrations every month. Well, I have, I'd like to just take a second. I mean, I don't put this thing out by myself. I have got a great staff of people here. I've got a managing editor, a senior editor, a copy editor, a art director who designs the magazine. He's the one, uh, Peyton McMahon, that makes it look really good. You know, we work back and forth. And I have a photo editor named Sarah Mock. 
And her job, she works with me, and I'll make suggestions, and then she'll get an, she'll she'll get the manuscript. We'll meet. We'll I'll discuss what I think might work, and then she'll go out and look for stuff, and she'll kind of come up with things on her own, and we call private collectors and archives and all over the place to uh, to try to find images that work. It's a challenge. I, I, I see. Me to me, magazines are a package. They're, they're, the visual impact has to be as important as the textual impact. That's I'd, I'd say it certainly does. We're going to take another short break. Okay, sure. Briefly, we'll come right back in just a moment, talking with Dana Schof on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Your article on fill-in-the-blank was the most outrageous piece of Yankee-slash-rebel propaganda I've ever seen. Please cancel my subscription. We'll find out how to be a Civil War Times reader when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars, but he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Dana Schof, editor of Civil War Times, the magazine that began back in centennial days as Civil War Times Illustrated, and 40-some years later still carries on presenting articles about this period in our history. We talked in our previous segments about uh, where these uh, magazines come from, uh, who reads them, uh, who writes for them, where the illustrations come from. but who reads them in particular is something we'd like to delve into a little bit more here. Um, uh, Dana, if, if you heard the teaser there, uh, you must have this experience on a daily basis, opening mail or email from disgruntled readers who insist that uh, whatever you put in that last magazine is the final nail in the coffin of your obvious Yankee bias or rebel bias, depending who's writing. And they're they're done with it. They're canceling the subscription. 
Yes, I, I've actually gotten quite a few of those after I published the article about Lee and slavery, and then I got a lot of letters of that nature. And the subsequent issue, which was the April issue of this year, I tried to explain my point, which is that I would li- I, I don't think magazines should necessarily print articles that you do agree with everything. And I think that they should stimulate thought and and provoke you to think about perhaps long-cherished notions that you had. You may not agree with them. I don't agree with everything that's published in the magazine. I mean, but if it's well-researched and it, and it uh, is capably drawn up, then and there's a point to be made, then I, then I will publish it. Uh, so I did get a lot of letters attacking me for being a, a politically correct Yankee who wanted everyone to think like I do, and that's really not the point of what I was trying to get across. And in fact, I'm going to have an article. Um, there's a book that's just come out called What Shall We Do With a Negro? Uh, that uh, talks about the question of African Americans in the Civil War and the uh, author is going to be, I think it's Paul Escott is his name. He's a professor. Yes. He's, put, he's putting together an article for me on uh, Patrick Claiborne's views on African-American troops in the Confederacy and arguing, uh, if, I ha- if I understand correctly, that Claiborne may have been ahead of the curve, even ahead of Lincoln in this thought, and certainly what Claiborne proposed was about on par with what Lincoln was proposing. So that's what I would not consider to be a particularly PC Yankees topic. <laughs> well, you certainly got uh, uh, some grief also uh, for the cover of America's Civil War, the, the January issue, with uh, the colorized photo of, of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yes, we did. Um, uh, people pointing out the juxtaposition of that and the, uh, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan and the inauguration of President Obama, some people thought was uh, a commentary on your part. Well, you know, that really startled me because I didn't I didn't think of that the connection with Obama's candidacy and Forrest at all. Never entered my mind. And um you know, Forrest was involved in the in the Ku Klux Klan. I believe that he did step out of it when it got too violent, but the article was essentially about Forrest and uh his um military Actions, which are very interesting, and uh, I have to say that issue sold very well. So we did get some letters attacking us for Forrest, and then we got a lot of letters supporting us for using Forrest on the cover. And I guess Jerry, if I'm getting letters angry at me from both sides, I'm probably doing my job somewhere along the line. I, th- I think and I know uh, your counterpart at North and South expressed the same opinion when he was on the show. If, if he gets an equal number or close number of complaints in each direction, and also just just serving as a uh, acting chair of a department, if I've got certain people mad at me, as long as they're different enough from different points of the compass, I, right? I'm doing all right. If, if all the extremists don't like me, then then yeah, I'm okay. But- but yeah, I, as I as I said, I, I I really think these magazines should be a platform for getting new material out there and maybe causing some debate, and uh, you know, causing people maybe to think about the Civil War in a little different way than they than they're used to. 
Well, that ties in with your with our discussion uh, in the earlier segment about having uh, academic writers, uh, having professors who've written Civil War books contribute to this. Thinking about one reason why a magazine like yours would continue to thrive in the Internet age, anybody can write stuff on the Internet, and they often do. Uh, there's no vetting process. There's no, uh, no guarantee that it means anything. And you suggested niche magazines still do well because people want to hold on to something. Right. Uh, but maybe they also do well in, in the sense that I can read people blathering on websites about what causes civil war, but an article by someone who has studied it, who cites his sources or her sources, and uh, uh, actually has something to back it up, has some value to me. And I wonder right. if readers appreciate that. No, I, I agree. And, um, you know, I, I, I've actually gotten some great articles from topics that I've seen discussed on blogs. Mm-hmm. I look at blogs every day. And, um, you know, I, I see what's going on out there. Some blog writers actually uh, write a fair amount for me. Ethan Refuse actually has a, contributes quite a bit to a blog, a fellow named Harry Smeltzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, who does Bull Runnings, a blog on the first battle of Bull Run. They write for the magazines. But blogs do have sort of this fleeting quality. You know, what's on that screen today is gone tomorrow. And sure, it's in the archives, but people kind of seem to tune in for that new thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one aspect of it. And I do think in a magazine you can develop a more mature art, uh, argument based on some of these things that you might discuss in a more loose fashion on blogs. And you kind of filter out all the noise that blogs develop and you know, distill it and, and present the argument more coherently in, in the written form. It's interesting. You mentioned the fact, you didn't really mention the fact that we don't use endnotes or footnotes, but you mentioned you know that in passing. Mm-hmm. We don't use them in Civil War times. We've talked about it, but I really believe this. I believe that these magazines should be aspirational in that you should be able to pick up and read them and get something out of it as well as the guy that's, you know, filling potholes on on the Virginia Department um, of Transportation road crew that's interested in the Civil War. And I think a lot of people, when they see footnotes or endnotes, they, they automatically have this reaction, this isn't for me, this is over my head. I'm not smart enough. I didn't go to college, or I only got a, you know, I'm not a Ph.D. I've heard that from enough people that I really feel that that is something that inhibits people from reading magazines. And we've made a compromise. We're developing now a resources section in in the back of our Civil War Times where we will at least list primary sources. Uh, If you want to go and find out more, we will point out where these things are located, that sort of thing. But, I think that's um, an interesting approach. Yeah, and that that's why um, that's why I don't use endnotes or footnotes in the magazine. I really think these magazines. I want them to be as available to as wide an audience as possible. And I I I just truly believe that the use of little tiny superscript numbers puts people off. It, I, I, I couldn't argue with that. I'm sure it does. There are other people who won't read anything that doesn't have that. Well, I know. But right. that's a much smaller audience. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Vernon Burton was on the show, wrote Age of Lincoln, a really interesting book. Uh, 
And in his book, he has no footnotes at all in his 400-page book, but they're all online. He has a website dedicated to the book, and if you want to check the references, you go there. Now, my response to that, I have to say, was not entirely positive because as I was reading the book on an airplane, I remember uh, at one point saying, oh, where did he get that? That's interesting. Or I think I read that somewhere, and I go to the back, nothing there. Go look at the website. Uh, but a magazine, have you ever thought of, of, of asking re- your writers to submit references and, and we we absolutely well they submit references mm-hmm. and very often the articles come in su- submitted with notes mm-hmm. and the 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 blunt honest reality is that we haven't had the time or the staff to do yeah. that because as you edit an article and you change notes around and some notes mm-hmm. get compacted that sort of thing you've got to keep catching up with all that right and um it sounds awful to do that, but what I've thought about doing is just running the raw, unedited manuscript as it comes in uh, online with notes. You know, we wouldn't really mess with it at all. Right. But um, our whole web presence is getting uh, undergoing a, re- a revamp right now as well. So that is going to be something we're going to be addressing probably within this next year if that's a real possibility. It's definitely something we've talked about, and I'm not opposed to it. It's, it's an interesting concept, uh, you know, finding, seeing how magazines will find their way into the, uh, uh, you know, into the 21st century, dealing with the presence of, of the web. And I think we're going to have to really partner with the web to survive. I think magazines are going to have to have more things, you know, that you refer from the magazine to the web. Uh, I can't predict the future, of course, but um, I, I do believe that that's going to that's going to have to be a technology that and a, an approach that we we develop. And I'm I'm eager to learn more about it. Now, if somebody wants to write an article for you, how do they do? You accept unsolicited manuscripts from people? I have gotten a lot pickier about that. Um, I do. But I really, at this point, with Civil War times, unless it's an outstanding submission with a really interesting topic, I really want to see some kind of writing credentials and some some research skills. That's why I do ask for source materials. Mm -hmm. And I get submissions that come out of the blue, uh, I would say I don't use probably 90% of them, maybe 95 Most of what goes in the magazine now at this point is solicited material. So you're able to steer a little bit the, yes. the, the subjects you want to cover and so on. Exactly. And um, I think that makes for a better magazine. I really do. You always get gems that come in. Mm-hmm. You always do. I mean, but they're be frank, quite frankly, they're the exception. You know, um, when you have thirty five hundred words to tell a story in a magazine, it can't not it can't be dull. No, <laughs> it's got to be lively and it's got to be well written to get your point across in that relatively short amount of space. And it's you know, and you know, with with all due, I mean, I can forgive somebody that is a professional historian that doesn't write all that well, but they've got a great story there. I will 
take the time to tweak that and work it around. It's worth it because the topic's good, interesting material. But I just mm-hmm. don't really need to do that now with uh, unsolicited submissions that aren't aren't properly written or well written. Mm-hmm. And and book reviews, likewise, I assume you send those out. Yes, uh, we do. Now you know, again, once in a while, I'll get a submission from someone, I'm a newspaper reporter from Iowa, and I bought this book, and I'd like to review it. And I'll say, well, write me up something and send it in. And we've used some of that stuff, because it can be well done. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, it, 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 it doesn't make the cut. It's not analytical enough. It just sort of repeats the, what the book's about. Now, one thing we haven't touched on, it's a, a huge topic, um, and it looks like we're not going to be able to as the music comes along to tell us we're done. Uh, is advertising, which for me is one of my favorite parts, seeing the vast array of Civil War-related goods out there. Right. Um, I, I would love to talk more about it, but this happens every week. We are <laughs> out of time too soon. Well, Jerry, someday I'll come back and we'll talk about advertising. We'll, we'll do that again. Thank you for being on the show, Dana. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This was a lot of fun. Listeners, uh, you get that uh, special Civil War Times Magazine offer at 800-435-0715, promotion code G9EWTR. Uh, give it a try. Read Civil War Times. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.